Welcome back to the Daily Devotion. My name is Kevin Hale. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Conway, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America here in Conway, Arkansas. The Daily Devotion is a time for us to be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. And at present, as you know, if you've been following along, we've just started a study on the book of Esther. And I've lost track. I was so excited about this study on Esther and continuing in that story that I forgot that yesterday was, in fact, Westminster Wednesday. And so rather than diving into the Westminster Confession of Faith, I dove back into the book of Esther. So today we're going to have Westminster Wednesday on a Thursday and continue to look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. Now we're looking at paragraph 4. And the reason I decided to go ahead and dive into this rather than skip it and just kind of pick back up on Westminster Wednesday next week is because this chapter on Providence... Uh, the, the fifth chapter of the Confession of Faith so beautifully fits with some of the things that we're talking about in the book of Esther. The fact that God does actually use these crooked sticks to draw straight lines, that he is, in fact, sovereign, that he is working out his will for the deliverance of his people, even through corrupt and selfish leaders and pagan leaders. And, and specifically, we're looking today at a section of the confession that reminds us of this. And so I wanted us to go ahead and pick back up in the confession of faith, even though we're a day late, and uh, and jump back in. And I realize it's late in the afternoon when this is getting uh, published. I had some early meetings that I had to attend to this morning, and I'm just now getting around to this, so I appreciate your patience. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 4. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the confession that summarizes what your word teaches. We pray that you would strengthen us, that we might understand your word, that we might believe your word, that we might live in light of your word. We ask all of this in Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5 of Providence, paragraph 4, says this, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Well, here we dive directly into the deep end of the pool, if we weren't there already, and we're looking at the reality of God's sovereignty and his providential rule, even over issues of sin that we see in us, and in the world. And the Westminster Divines, those, those men who penned the Westminster Confession, begin by reminding us the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, wisdom, and infinite goodness of God, in other words, those realities by which his providence is maintained, so far manifest themselves in his providence. In other words, his providence extends all the way even to the first fall, to the fall of man and all other sins of angels and men. So here's what, what the, the Westminster Confession is teaching. The fall of man, 
back recorded in Genesis 1 and 2, or I'm sorry, recorded in Genesis 3, creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and then the fall in Genesis 3. The fall was not outside of God's plan. The fall of mankind into sin, the plunging of all of creation into the despair of, of sin was not outside of the plan of God. It wasn't a surprise to him. In fact, it was by the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God that his providence was extended even to the fall. So this points out a couple of things. When we look at redemption, if the fall was part of God's providential plan, then redemption isn't plan B. He wasn't surprised by that and then had to go figure out what to do because we had messed everything up. Further, this providential rule of God extends to all other sins of angels and men. All right, there's a subtle little theological point in there that angels can, in fact, sin. And we see this, that, that uh, with the fall of the, the angels that were swept from the sky, but, but the, the point that the confession here is making is that God's providence is still at work by his almighty power, by his unsearchable wisdom, by his infinite goodness. His providence is still at work even in the individual sins of his creatures. Both the fall and any sins that flow from that, us being born in sin, all of that is under the providential rule of God. Every single bit of it is part of God's plan. Now, this obviously introduces a great mystery as to, well, why would he work things out that way? The Bible doesn't answer that question for us, other than to say that all things work together for the good of those whom he has called according to, the, to his purpose other than to say that all things are for the glory of God, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul ends Romans chapter 11 with those words. But apart from those kind of more general answers, we're really up against the wall when we start trying to answer, why did God decide to do it this way? The secret things indeed do belong to God. And Though we can say with Joseph of hard situations, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, we can't answer the question of why without delving into all kinds of speculative and therefore dangerous theology. However, the confession goes on. He, he providentially rules over the fall and over all sins of his creatures, and he doesn't do so just by bare permission. In other words, he hasn't just wound the world up and gotten it started and then sat back and let things happen. It isn't that he just kind of passively was like, huh, well, that's interesting. They just ate the fruit. Well, that's interesting. They just committed adultery. Well, that's interesting. He just stole something or she just killed someone. It, that, that's not what's going on here. This, this stuff isn't happening by God's simple permission. Rather, it is joined with a most wise and powerful bounding. In other words, he sets the limits of how far it can go. And otherwise ordering, he sets its purpose and what it is accomplishing and governing them. In other words, every aspect of these sinful realities, God providentially rules over. He's not lost control when a despot comes to power. He's not lost control when Haman seeks to kill the Jews or when Hitler seeks to kill the Jews or when Christians are persecuted. 
God has not lost control. Rather, he is setting the boundaries of how far those struggles can go. He's setting the boundaries of how far sin can go. He's ordering it for his purposes, and he's governing it to make sure it happens according to his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Nothing that we do in our failures is outside of God's control. Nothing that anyone might do against us in their sin is outside of God's providential rule and reign. This may tempt us like it did the Romans to rhetorically ask Paul, then why then does he hold us accountable? And how can he charge anyone with sin? And all of those kinds of questions. And the only answer we can give to that is the biblical one, which Paul gives is, who are you to answer back to God? Does the creator not have every right to make what he wants and to dispose the creature to what he wants? Indeed, he does. And so God has ordered things according to his purposes to bring about his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And this includes all of the sin of the world, even ours. And he does this, as it says, to his own holy ends. Yet, we must take another step then, because as soon as we hear that, we say, well then, surely God must be held responsible for the atrocities committed in this world. Surely God must be held responsible for the Holocaust. Surely God must be held responsible for the bombing of innocent people. Surely God must be held responsible for war and murder and all of these things. But the confession reminds us, as Scripture does, and again, here we, we see our confession trying to hold these biblical realities in tension that we struggle to hold, yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God. In other words, my sin is my sin, not God's. He providentially rules over it. He sets its bounds. He orders it. He governs it. Yet it is still my sin. I am still the one who is properly responsible for my own sin. And you are for yours. And every individual is for theirs. That's what the confession is driving at. The sinfulness of these actions, all of this sin over which God sovereignly and providentially rules, proceeds from the creature, not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Now, here, as I said, this is an, an enormous point of tension. On the one hand, we affirm with Scripture that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, and that includes every sin that is committed in all of human history, and that includes the fall. We affirm that God providentially rules over all things, and that, yes, he uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. He used the sinfulness of Joseph's brothers to bring him and deliver him to Egypt in order that his people might be enslaved in Egypt, in order that his promises of delivering them might be kept. All of this God has providentially ruled over. Yet, it can't be hung on him. Joseph's brothers' sin was their sin. God wasn't the author of it, nor did he approve of it. The sins of Egypt in enslaving the people of God were Egypt's sin. God was not the author of it, nor did he approve of it. Your sin 
that you commit is your sin. God was not the author of it, nor did he approve of it. This is why James says in James chapter 1, verse 13, when, when asking the question or when pointing out and dealing with the reality that, that we recognize and, and sometimes we falsely say God is tempting us, James reminds us that that's wrong because God, he says in chapter 1, verse 13 of the book of James, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. John, as quoting here from Chad Van Dixhorn's book, John affirms the same truth when he writes that all that is in the world, the lust of flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. So yes, as we look at the book of Esther, as we look at life, as we read the confession, we do see this profound tension whereby we affirm God is in control of all things. He is sovereign. He is providentially ruling all things to bring about his holy will according to his holy ends. Yet... He is not the author or approver of sin. The sin flows from us. And yes, we hold these things in tension. We can only go as far as what Scripture says, and Scripture affirms both of these realities. And so we're left again with this tension of faith. Might we learn to rest there, affirming all that Scripture affirms, that God is, in fact, providentially ruling and overruling, and that he is holy and righteous, and therefore all sinfulness proceeds from his creatures and not from him. And in affirming that, might we see our need for his mercy to be poured out. In Christ's name, amen. Mm -hmm.